Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 17. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Amen. So at this conference, we were thinking together about building our lives on the rock of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, our text tonight comes, as you know, from the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus here is teaching about the nature of the kingdom, the nature of the blessedness of the kingdom, the nature of the citizens of the kingdom who are in the verses preceding the one we just read called salt and light. Uh, we see that the church is salt and light here on the earth. And now we want to look at the words of Jesus Christ with regard to the Bible. I want to talk about the authority and the permanency and the usefulness of the entire Bible in two parts. The first part is going to be in verse 17. All scripture testifies of Christ. All scripture testifies of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then verses 18 to 20 Secondly, all scripture is therefore relevant and abiding. All scripture is therefore relevant and abiding. So point number one, all scripture testifies of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 17 together again. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Now, one of the criticisms levied at the Lord Jesus Christ, and interestingly enough, later uh, levied against the Apostle Paul, was that they were overthrowing Moses. You remember that Jesus was accused at one point of breaking the Sabbath because he healed on the Sabbath day and told those that he healed to take up their pallet and walk. Jesus was accused of blasphemy because he made himself equal with the Father in glory and power. Um, Paul was accused of overthrowing the law of Moses. And, and so we see that uh, Paul was persecuted uh, at the temple because of his preaching of Christ. But Jesus makes it plain here <clears throat> that he is not overthrowing uh, Paul, excuse me, Paul, of Moses or the prophets. Uh, the, the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking plainly here that his ministry is in unity with the ministry that was begun by Moses and continued on through David and Solomon and the latter prophets that we find. That is, from Genesis to Malachi, Jesus is affirming the authority of the scriptures. He is affirming that none of those writings inspired by the Spirit of God uh, are to be annulled or set aside. He's not setting aside anything in his life, in his person, in his ministry, but as he says, he's fulfilling it. So Christ is not advocating for the abolition 
of God's standards, of God's law, of God's righteousness, of um, God's prophets. But he is saying that the law and the standard and the righteousness and the prophets are all pointing to him. Now we see this, for example, in the teaching of the Apostle Paul, where Paul says that the law is to be understood as a tutor to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what is a tutor? Well, a tutor is that kind of teacher that helps with one's work. Maybe you're good in certain subjects, maybe you're good at reading and history, but you struggle with math. And so mom and dad get you an extra tutor to strengthen that subject that you're a little weak in. And so you do a little extra work with a teacher to uh, strengthen you in that. That's called a tutor. A tutor is somebody who helps teach you. And so Paul is saying that the law and the prophets are tutors for the children of Israel. You have to remember that the church in the Old Testament was not in a state of maturity yet. You are in a state of maturity, not because we are inherently better than the people of the Old Testament, but because we have the Spirit of God has been given. That is, that, that with the coming of Christ, the church has, uh, if you will, evolved, if I can say that, that the church has grown into a new stature, a new position. Uh, Jesus Christ has come. He has fulfilled the law and the prophets. He has died on the cross for our sins. He has been raised bodily from the dead. He's ascended, and the Spirit has been given. And now we are no longer as infants, uh, but we have been brought to a state of maturity compared to that in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, uh, you had uh, people who had the Spirit of God, certainly, but they had not the Spirit in the same measure by any degree that you have been given the Spirit of God. You know, you read the, the uh, Gospels and you wonder, how come these disciples can't seem to get it? How come, you know, Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, and they start talking about, did you bring the bread? What bread is he talking about? Or, you know, Jesus says, I have food of which you know not of. And they're like, did somebody feed him while we were away? You know, how come they seem so dense? Um, and it's because the Spirit of God had not really fully opened their hearts and minds to the degree that they would be opened after the giving of the Spirit. And so you have to realize that the, the same, um, you know, Peter who said, you know, Lord forbid that you should go to the cross is what? Later, preaching the cross after the giving of the Spirit. Because Peter was brought from a state of immaturity to maturity by the, by the outpouring of the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, as we see the Bible, you need to see the Bible as an integrated whole. The Bible is a, a continual revelation of God as we move from Old to New Testament. There's a continuity there. There's not to be this sharp division or bifurcation between the old and the new. There, it, it, it is uh, a single thread, if you will. But we also have to keep in mind, though, that the continuity is not a flat continuity. That there is development. There's continuity, but there is development in the continuity as well. And so you think of it as a graph as you move from one end of the graph to the other, that, that the line is going upward, and it, and it, it goes upward exponentially with the coming of Jesus Christ. 
You know, it's, it's like a stock that's just like Amazon, you know, kind of flat for a while, then suddenly, whoa, it just, it just took off, right? And, and uh, it is way above where it used to be. And that's kind of the way it is with the scriptures. Or to use another illustration, you might think of the Bible, uh, boys and girls, as like a beautiful flower, you girls who like flowers. Um, you think of maybe, I don't know what your favorite flower is, it's probably a tulip, right? No, I, it could be a rose. But, <laughs> but uh, think about the stem. You, you know, the flower grows. You've got the stem, and then you start to see the bulb, and then the bulb becomes the flower. And the Bible's the same way. The Bible starts off kind of just this stem coming out uh, of the ground, you know, and the seed of the woman shall crush the head of the serpent. You're like, ah, what, you know, what is that? You know, well, that's the gospel, you know in embryonic form. Um, you know, what is this that the scepter shall not leave between the feet of Judah? That seems kind of mystic, kind of cryptic, um, you know, not too clear, but it becomes clear from our perspective as we get to look back, as we see the development of the scripture leading to Jesus Christ, and now we, in Christ, by the Spirit's help, we can see this and understand more fully than the people of God even could in their own day. Remember that the New Testament tells us <clears throat> that even the prophets, as they wrote, didn't fully understand what they always wrote. So there were days that Isaiah got off from work and went home, and Mrs. Isaiah said, what did you write about? And Mr. Isaiah says, well, I'm not sure exactly what I wrote about, but there is coming this great servant of God one day. And he's going to suffer for our sins. And, you know, but beyond that, he, he didn't necessarily know all that it entailed. So Jesus is saying that he is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. The Pharisees accused Jesus of the exact opposite. They said that Jesus was overturning the law. Uh, but he wasn't. Jesus was saying that he's the culmination of the law and the prophets. He, he is the substance that goes in. If you think of this glass that is empty, um, you, you know, know that there's a purpose for this glass. Um, the glass in and of itself, nice, but not much of great use if there's nothing in it, right? So in the same way, the law and the prophets form a, like a glass there. They, they are that which holds, but the, the main item is what goes in, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the sweet wine that goes in the glass. And we see the fulfillment of God's promises as we work through. Now, I already mentioned Adam and Eve. They had the gospel preached to them that the seed of the woman, that is, the Lord Jesus Christ, would be a real man. The seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And boys and girls, you know who the serpent is, don't you? Who's the serpent in the garden? The serpent is the devil, right? The serpent is the evil one. And it's a promise that Jesus would have victory over Satan. Jesus would defeat Satan. And that was the promise given to Adam and Eve. But they would have to wait a long time for that promise to be fulfilled. We could look at some of the Psalms. David lived a thousand years prior to Jesus. And David, though, uh, a thousand years uh, spoke of Christ. So, for example, in Psalm 2, God promised uh, David that th there would be one who would sit 
on the throne of David and that he would reign and that all the judges and kings of the earth better repent and believe on him. And that, of course, is speaking of Christ. When you get to the book of Acts, they quote that very psalm, today I have begotten thee. And, and, th and they made, made it a reference to the resurrection, uh, which preceded the, the ascension. Psalm 22, David says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not knowing how those words would be fulfilled in, in their greater meaning by Jesus Christ when he's hanging on the cross and he cries those words out. Uh, you could look at Psalm 23 where the Lord is my shepherd and we know from John chapter 10 that Jesus is the good shepherd. Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Uh, and we know that that is a reference to Christ. You could go to Exodus chapter 12 where the Passover was instituted. And Jesus then in the upper room, what is he doing? He's saying essentially he is the Passover. On the night of the Passover, he breaks bread. And he says, this is my body. It's broken for you. Eat this. Eat this as a part of your Passover because I'm the fulfillment of the Passover. Take this cup and drink of it for in this cup is the new covenant signifying uh, our salvation and the remission of sins. You could look at the uh, book of Leviticus and you see the sacrificial system. And if you read that book, you, you can sometimes be overwhelmed by all the sacrifices, all the types of sacrifices, and how ornate some of these sacrifices had to be and all the preparation that had to go into it. Those of you who are hunters, I know, appreciate something of the labor that goes into that in the, in the preparing uh, of those uh, animals that you harvest. And, and yet, <coughs> what do we say? Well, we say that the, the sacrificial system is leading us to Jesus again. Uh, as we saw this morning, because the blood of those animals cannot take away any sin. And so it, it is going to have to be Jesus. And what does John the Baptist say when Jesus makes his very first appearance on the public scene uh, to begin his ministry? He says, behold, the Lamb of God. And that would have been huge news to people who lived under the sacrificial system and knew what it was to go to the temple and to see the sacrifices, and to hear that a Lamb of God has come among them. Um, <clears throat> we know uh, Isaiah 53, I mentioned the suffering servant. Jeremiah 31, the prophet Jeremiah speaks about the new covenant, and we know that it is Jesus who inaugurates the new covenant. Daniel chapter 7, Daniel saw one like the Son of Man coming up to the Ancient of Days. Who is this Son of Man? Well, that happened to be the title that Jesus preferred for himself more than any other title. Interestingly, that Jesus would call himself the Son of Man, and that Daniel saw this Son of Man coming to the Father, and that the Father would give him all the nations of the earth. So uh, time and again, and we could spend even more time tonight doing that, but I hope that's enough of a sample to show you how the Lord Jesus Christ is fulfilling all these things that were taught by Moses and the prophets. Why is this? Well, because Jesus is ultimately the author of the law and the prophets. <clears throat> Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets by his active and passive obedience. Jesus made atonement for the violations of the law and the violations condemned by the prophets. And Jesus is the vindication of the righteousness of the law in his resurrection, that God raised him who was innocent in himself from the dead bodily on the third day. Now, <clears throat> what then are the applications for
for this first point. All Scripture testifies of Christ. What are the applications of this first point? Application number one. If indeed Christ has fulfilled the law and the prophets, which I think we've successfully, hopefully, argued that he has. If indeed Christ has fulfilled the law and the prophets, and if we are, as the end of the Sermon on the Mount says, we are to build our lives on Christ the rock and all that he says in Matthew 7, 24 to 27, then we first must begin by true faith in Jesus Christ, of whom the law and the prophets spoke. That is, if we are, as we are about to be commanded to keep the laws and commandments of God, we need to have evangelical faith in Jesus Christ. We have to start with faith in Christ. Otherwise, we're going to get the wagon ahead of the horse. We need to go to that which drives our obedience, and that is Christ himself. Our righteousness, we are told in verse 20, has to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. How in the world can we exceed the righteousness of those scribes and Pharisees? Well, we must (coughs) exceed it in two ways. First of all, by way of imputation. We exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees by faith in Jesus Christ. When you put your trust in Jesus Christ, Jesus gives you his righteousness. Jesus gives you his perfected works. Jesus gives you all his merit as though you had merited it yourself. And he he gives it to you and you put it on. That's your righteousness now. So that even though you are still a sinner, still growing in grace, uh, but yet still imperfect, nevertheless, you own a righteousness that is acceptable to God because it is not yours inherently. It belonged to Christ. And Jesus, excuse me, the Father said of Jesus, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. That's your righteousness right now. So in that way, your righteousness already exceeds the righteousness of the the scribes and the Pharisees. But secondly, there's another righteousness that is needed, and that is the righteousness that is ours inherently. That is, once we receive the imputed righteousness of justification uh, by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone through no works of ours, but trusting in Christ. Now we come to the lot right next door. It doesn't overlap in any way with justification, but it is right next door to the lot of justification, and that is the lot of sanctification. We then seek to grow in grace through an evangelical obedience to God's commandments. So that having trusted in Jesus Christ, having received Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we seek to grow in the likeness to Christ. And the way we grow in Him is being united to Him. The way we bear fruit for Christ is being uh, in the tree uh, by faith. That if, if we are the branch, um, He is the tree, and we are engrafted into him by faith. And therefore, and thereby, we produce the fruit of faith. So I want to say this. This means, in particular, we have to always keep Christ at the center of our church's ministry. Uh, We are not here to help you live your best life now so much, but we are here to preach Christ and him crucified. 
is Jesus that we set before people. We need Jesus Christ on a daily basis. We need the gospel daily. Uh, we always have to look away from our own righteousness to the righteousness of Jesus by faith. And that is, if you are to build your life on the rock, as Jesus tells us to do, we have to know the rock. And the rock is a person. And we also recognize that if our neighbors are to build their lives on a sure foundation, they must know the rock, and that means they have to know Jesus Christ. Our culture, our nation, needs to know Jesus Christ if we are to have a sure foundation, even for a civil order. That means that evangelism and preaching and personal witnessing are important, even imperative. Jesus, before his ascension, gave us the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, and he set before us the promise that all authority has been given unto him in heaven and on earth, and the Spirit has uh, been promised, and that we were to go and disciple the nations. He would build his church. So we have a subsequent duty to make Jesus Christ known and to help people see that Jesus can be known from the whole Bible. All of Scripture is important because it all points to Jesus Christ. Now, I want to look at verses 18 and 19 with the remainder of our time. All Scripture is therefore relevant and abiding. Look at verse 18 here. Now, Jesus has just said, I didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets. I didn't come to abolish but to fulfill. And then, secondly, verses 18 and following. For, I, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So let's break this down a little, shall we? In verse 18. For truly I say to you, and that's the way Jesus often would speak, verily, verily, truly, truly, I say to you, meaning that this is of great significance. He says here that what? The Bible is abiding. He says, even until heaven and earth pass away, not even the, the smallest pen stroke of a Hebrew scribe copying the scriptures is going to pass away. Now you have to understand that uh, in, in Hebrew and also in Greek, um, there are some very uh, small letters. Um, uh, the, the difference between uh, the letter Beth uh, and the letter Kaf in Hebrew, for example, is just a dot. They're basically almost identical letters except for a little dot. Maybe the closest you could think about this in terms of English is if you think of the capital letter O. You know how to make an O, right, young kids? It's a big circle, right, the letter O? Well, what's the letter Q? Well, it's really the letter O, right? But plus a little, little just a small little line through the bottom right-hand part of that letter. I mean, I'm talking, and we're not talking cursive here. I don't, does anybody make a cursive Q anymore? I don't know. Even when I write cursive, I don't do the cursive Q. But the Q, the capital Q, just a circle with a little line. And Jesus is saying that not a stroke, not even a little stroke that separates the O from the Q is going to pass away. It is going to be abiding uh, through this whole life and history of, of men 
in the, the scriptures elsewhere even go even further, that eternal, as we sang from Psalm 119, eternal is thy word. The word even goes beyond uh, the, the longevity of the sun and the moon. Jesus is using this language to demonstrate here that the, the Bible is permanent. The word of God is permanent. The word of God cannot be broken. The word is infallible. The word is inerrant down to its details. We believe in what is theologically known as the plenary inspiration of Scripture. We in the Presbyterian Church believe in the plenary inspiration of Scripture. The plenary inspiration of Scripture is a mouthful, I realize, but it can be simply broken down as this. We believe that the Scripture is inerrant and infallible as the Word of God in the words of God. That is, all the details, all the syntax of the Greek and the Hebrew are inerrant and are specifically there for us in the autographa uh, as the very word of God in the very details of God's words. And so Jesus breaks it down just to the, even to the smallest part, saying that the Bible is that uh, perfect. The scriptures are perfect. Now, I, I want you young people, you especially you who are in middle school and high school to hear me, because you may at some point find that there will be those who are going to try to attack your faith. And one of the ways that they try to attack the faith of Christian kids is by attacking the authority of the scriptures. Because they think that if they can undermine your commitment to the authority of the scriptures, then they can undermine your faith. Your faith will crumble under that weight as well. This is as old as the devil coming to our first parents and saying, Hath, Lord, hath the Lord really said that the, the Satan seeks to attack at that very point of getting you to question the authority of the scriptures and of the word? The trouble that Eve fell into, I think, is that she began to weigh um, in, in her own mind the, the, the commandment of the word and that of suggestion of Satan and, and obviously chose poorly between the two, when de the devil comes to us and seeks to undermine our confidence in the scriptures, it is probably wise for us to answer uh, Satan in the way that Jesus did during his time of temptations. You remember that Satan tried the same. Um, you know, that Satan even appealed to scripture. He appeals to angels bearing him up uh, and that not a, a, not a uh, foot will stumble upon the rock and he says, why don't you just, you know, throw yourself off this temple? The angels will catch you as you are falling. And, and why don't you show yourself to be the son of God in that way? And Jesus says, it is written. It is written. It is written. Each temptation was met with, it is written. And so he appealed to the authority of scripture when Satan sought to undermine the scripture. And, you know, and in that case, Jesus said, you know, thou shalt not put the Lord thy God to the test. And that was the answer. Um, now, we also um, need to recognize that, um, by way of application, that as Christians, we are to be students of the whole Bible, not just the New Testament. You are not a New Testament Christian. You are a whole Bible Christian, according to these words right here in the New Testament. If you are just a New Testament Christian, you are not doing what the New Testament says to do. The New Testament says we are to be whole uh, 
Bible Christians. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. All Scripture. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Yes, Leviticus. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. One of the problems, I think, with evangelicalism today, broadly speaking, is how biblically thin we are. We profess, even in the churches that profess a, a love for the Scripture, a high view of the authority of Scripture, at a practical level, they uh, often annul large portions of the Bible by way of neglect. And so you can serve and sit in some congregations and never hear preaching from the Old Testament. And if you do, it's only often a, a, a story uh, that is to not point us to Christ. They often, even in the teaching of the Old Testament, fail to bring us to a Christological moment where we realize that this is, as Jesus said, fulfilled in our hearing through Jesus Christ. But they somehow always skip over Christ and try to always bring it directly to us. And what does this mean for you? And, and I, I'm all for application and preaching. But the application always has to come by way of the cross and the resurrection. We have to realize that the, the scripture in the Old Testament was written to a particular audience that was looking ahead to the coming of Messiah. The Bible says that Abraham longed to see the days of Jesus. He looked ahead and longed to see the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I know, as I told the congregation in Buford, that you probably tire of me making this point, but I'll make it here again. And that is that often we uh, learn all we need to know about somebody's spiritual condition by looking at how they use the Lord's Day. And as I've said on previous occasions, I must pass at least six dark churches on Sunday night. And we think to ourselves, do we really know our Bible so well? that we can take Sunday night off and, and watch television instead? Think with me about athletes. You think about um, D1 level college athletes, Olympic athletes, professional athletes. And what do you know about often their training? If you've ever participated in sports, you, you know the, the concept and you didn't always love it, but you knew it was good for you and it was called the two-a-day, right? You know what the two-a-day is, right? The two-a-day is just like it sounds. You've got to practice twice a day. And for a period of time, usually the first uh, workout was a conditioning workout, and the second workout was more on the mechanics of whatever sport you were playing, getting those mechanics down. And this is what it takes to excel at the highest levels um, in this country, in, in uh, D1 sports, and, and certainly at the professional level. And, and, and Paul says, you know, uh, athletes, they compete for that which is perishing. The, in his day, it was a wreath. And he said they, they compete, uh, and, and they, all they get is something that's perishable. And the question is, are we going to train less than the athlete? You know, Paul said to Timothy, he compared the ministry to that of an athlete. He compared it to a farmer. He compared it to the military. And what do you know about the military and the farmers and the athletes? You have, to make, you have to make commitments, don't you, and sacrifices in, in order to be uh, equipped for your vocation. I, I think I've shared with you before, Dr. Bob Godfrey, he's the president, or was formerly president 
of uh, Westminster West uh, Seminary in Escondido, California. I think uh, he has stepped down. He's a regular faculty member now, and they've elected a new president. But I remember him at a conference in South Carolina warning those of us in the South that we best be careful because he says, you know, coming from California, Sunday nights in South Carolina now look a lot like they did in Southern California several decades ago where churches meet only in the morning and then a few decades later they're not meeting at all. I can remember when I became a new Christian, 1988, I came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and I didn't know the difference between OPC, PCA, PCUSA. I was just brand new, you know, infant Christian trying to figure this out. And uh, so I go to a Presbyterian church, you know, not far from home, and it's a PCUSA church, and I'm listening to this sermon, and I'm thinking, you know, he's comparing the Trinity to three books Theodore Roosevelt wrote, and I'm thinking, this doesn't sound like the R.C. Sproul tapes I was listening to. And so I decide, well, let's try the Baptist church. I hear they have the reputation of holding to the Bible, so I go to the Baptist church. And back then, Dunwoody Baptist Church, where I did uh, become a member and stayed a member until I joined the OPC down in Florida, um, they had morning and evening worship back then in 1988. In fact, I remember one time they had family day, and they one time during the summer they took Sunday night off, and I remember feeling kind of discouraged, you know, because family night. And I'm like, I wanted to go to church. You know, my, my family weren't believers at home. I didn't want to go home. I wanted to go to church. And, but, you know, there are no Sunday night services at that church anymore. Um, I checked this past week just to make sure. Uh, I, th- I was pretty certain I knew that to be the case, but I went online and, and looked, and th- there's no Sunday night service anymore. Um, now, I realize that for some, it, it can be arduous to drive the distance to come to a morning service, to have to go home, and then to have to do it again in the evening. But I think if, if that is, is a is a, a problem to keeping the Lord's Day that maybe we ought to think more about church planting, planting daughter churches so that those who live far away don't have to commute uh, back and forth so much. I know it, we never, you know, it's always hard for churches to, to give up people and you want that fellowship and all, but that, that's a part of the growing the kingdom is the hiving of, of churches and multiplying. And, uh, and I, I think that's what we're supposed to be doing. Now, we can not only, we, we not only, I should say, we not only can annul the word of God by our neglect of it, either by not attending church, or when we do attend church, only teaching from certain portions of the Bible, but we also can annul the word of God by adding to it, by way of addition. You'll remember how Jesus rebuked the Pharisees uh, because uh, he said that, um, The fifth commandment says, honor your father and mother. But he said what? That they, the Pharisees, invalidated the fifth commandment because they wouldn't care for their parents in their old age. He said, mom, dad, whatever we had, uh, we've given it away. And remember that the Bible says he who will not care for his own is worse than an infidel. And so they invalidated the scriptures, the Pharisees did. Even though they had the reputation of upholding the scriptures, they actually did not uphold the scriptures. It's the very opposite. They invalidated the word of God by adding traditions to the Bible. Uh, you remember that uh, they were rebuked because they, they were scandalized that Jesus didn't wash his hands ceremonially prior to eating. 
Now, for hygiene reasons, boys, if your mom says wash your hands, you wash your hands, okay? Don't be quoting that back at your mother saying, well, Jesus said it's not what goes into a man that defiles him. That was a different issue here. But Jesus was saying what? That they, they, they were undermining the Bible. Uh, they made the Sabbath, the fourth commandment. It was, Isaiah said, make it a delight. They did not make it a delight. They rejected the acts of necessity and mercy. They showed themselves kinder to their animals than to people who were bent over with spinal afflictions or deformed with withered arms or limbs. He says, you hypocrites, you'll lead your donkey, you'll untie your donkey, lead the donkey to water. This poor woman's been bent over for years and you won't allow me to untie her without accusing me of violating the Sabbath. Jesus said here that whoever annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever keeps and teaches them, though, he shall be great. And if we are to keep God's commandments, we also have to keep this in mind, that the commandments of God are also spiritual and they apply to the internal life. It is not just to get us to conform outwardly. Remember here again, the Pharisees were champions of this. They were, as Jesus said, whitewashed tombs. They looked nice, beautiful marble, but what? Inwardly filled with dead men's bones. And Jesus exhorted them, clean the inside of your cup. You guys clean enough so that you look good to other men. But you secretly are indulging in all kinds of lust and, and covetousness, secret sins that God can see, but men don't. He said the law of God applies to the inward life of a man, so that is, if he so much as lusteth at the woman, he has committed adultery. If he is angry with his brother unrighteously, he is guilty of murder. The, the commandments of murder and adultery and theft and the rest, they apply to the inward intentions and thoughts of our heart. And that we have to mortify the remaining corruption, the, the remaining theft and murder that's in my life. The adultery that is in my life, inwardly, it needs to be mortified. So we see um, that we need the scriptures in all areas of our life. We need to confess our failures to an omniscient God who can already, he already knows, may as well confess it to him. He says, you, God says, Jesus says, you must become his little children. And therefore, we have to seek the righteousness that is found in Jesus Christ. And as grateful children, thereby seek a life of sanctification, a life of holiness. The book of Hebrews says that without holiness, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. Let me close with this. I need not tell you what a mess we are in as a people, as a nation. This uh, is not necessarily an entirely new reality. However, some things have gotten worse. But Jesus is the solution. And the Bible says you are his agents. You are the salt. You are the light of the world. He's not exhorting you to become salt and exhorting you to be light. He says you are the light and the salt because <clears throat> you are blessed by the Lord. You are the ones who have the grace of God working in you and through you. You are the ones through Faith in the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, keep God's commandments with evangelical obedience. So what do we conclude with? Number one, 
renew or refresh your Bible reading if needed. Renew and refresh your Bible reading if needed. You are a whole Bible Christian. If you need a Bible calendar, let us know. We can point you to. There are many out there. I think Ligonier Ministries even has a page that they've dedicated to all the different types of Bible reading plans you could commit yourself to. But seek to read the whole of the scriptures. Teenagers, you should be moving on uh, from your middle school days. No offense to middle schoolers, but it's time to, there comes a point where you have to move beyond struggling to have a quiet time. There comes a point of maturity where you need to just, without goading from mom and dad, take up your Bible and begin to read your Bible and to delight in the scriptures. If need be, read the easiest parts first. Read Proverbs. Uh, read, read the Psalms. Read maybe, you know, the Gospels first. And then maybe get to the harder sections of the Bible. Think about also, as we think about the authority of Scripture, we um, need to think about here, I think, the issue of evangelism too. Notice here that Jesus does say that it is not just those who heed the commandments, but who teach others to do so as well. There's an obligation for us to introduce people to Jesus Christ in the Scriptures. And I want to encourage you to think about who you might be reaching out to at a very personal level. You are the missionaries here in LaGrange and in this region. And then remember the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a matter of love. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And we want to love the Lord Jesus Christ and demonstrate our love for him by doing as he has commanded us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our lesson tonight. We thank you for the scriptures that cannot be broken. And we ask, Lord, that the Holy Spirit bless all that we've heard tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.